Hi, and welcome to episode two of Let's Talk Children's Books. This is the podcast where I share thoughts and ideas about reading, writing, illustrating, and telling children's stories of all kinds. Whatever your interest is in children's books, I hope there'll be something here for you. In this week's episode, I'll be talking about people who have influenced me in the past, people with bags of experience telling tales and getting others to read good books. It seems the best way to learn is by watching others in action and hearing what they have to say. And with so many YouTube videos and podcasts just a click away, there's never been a better time to do that. Thanks to all those who've already sent feedback on episode one. It means a lot. I'd love to hear about your love of children's books and which ones have meant the most to you. Anyway, for the next ten minutes or so, just sit back, give your cuppa a stir, and I'll make a start. As a young trainee teacher, I was assigned to a village school in North Yorkshire for my very first teaching practice. This was my big chance to watch an expert at work. It was a chance to try out all the theory I'd picked up at college. The school was tiny, just two classes, one for the infants and one for the juniors. I was to spend six weeks with the older children, and another student was assigned to teach the younger ones. The headmaster was indeed a master, a master storyteller. To look at, he was rather like a sketched drawing of a wolf by Quentin Blake. He was tall, lean, and had a thick beard. On the morning we arrived, it was time for assembly, and the children were perched on stools and wooden benches at the far end of the classroom. The headmaster was sitting on a chair, clutching a slender brown parcel. He unwrapped it carefully. Inside was a crisp new copy of Roald Dahl's rewriting of Grimm's fairy tales. It was called Revolting Rhymes and had a drawing on the cover of a greedy wolf licking its chops and reading to a wide-eyed girl and boy who were sitting on its lap. The head teacher wet his thumb and finger and turned to the contents page. Hands up for Cinderella, he said. A couple of infants put up their hands. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, he then asked, pronouncing dwarfs rather curiously and raising an eyebrow. A girl at the back gingerly raised her hand. The headmaster said, Who's for Little Red Riding Hood and the Wolf, then? Like salmon leaping, the rest of the class sprang from their seats and shot up their hands. By way of an observation, I've tried the same thing many times, and Red Riding Hood always wins hands down, or should I say, hands up. I'm not entirely sure why that's so, Perhaps it has something to do with the imminent prospect of a face-off between a tiny innocent girl and a big bad wolf. Anyway, back to the story. The headmaster turned to page 36. He studied the rhyme thoughtfully, then looked up, locking his gaze on a small girl on the front row. He scratched his hairy chin and began. As soon as wolf began to feel that he would like a decent meal. He went and knocked on Grandma's door. When Grandma opened it, she saw the sharp white teeth, the horrid grin, and Wolfie said, May I come in? Poor Grandmama was terrified. He's going to eat me up, she cried, and she was absolutely right. He ate her up in one big bite. 
but Grandmama was small and tough and wolfy wailed. That's not it. The headmaster's delivery was flawless. The whole thing was a masterclass in how to grab an audience by the ears and hold their attention to the very last full stop. I've often wondered why tales about wolves and dragons, ogres and wicked witches appeal so much to children. After all, they're not ever likely to meet one, are they? Or are they? Do little children know instinctively that evil characters are out there, lurking just around the corner, ready to eat them up or turn them into slimy toads? Stories about beasts and villains might just serve as a trial run for a proper confrontation with one of life's real charlatans or monsters. Seeing Red Riding Hood act swiftly and bravely may just be the template for heroism they need. Well, whatever the truth of the matter, everyone roared with delight in that school assembly when the young girl whips out a pistol from her knickers and, with a single shot, shoots the wolf stone dead. Inspired by the headmaster's expert telling of stories, I thought I'd give it a try. One of my tutors asked me to read him a story, a trial run of sorts. I picked out an old German tale, and to inject a bit of authenticity, launched into my reading in a thick Bavarian accent. After a page or two, the tutor stopped me. You're not going to read the whole thing like that, are you? he asked. I nodded. Best not, he said. Half the kids won't have a clue what you're saying. The other half will be imitating you all day long, and it'll drive you mad. The lesson I learnt is that accents and funny voices are great at the right time, and in the right place. A little further on in my teaching practice, I was taught another valuable lesson about reading stories to children. My choice of books was Little House on the Prairie by Laura Ingalls Wilder. If you're my age, you'll probably remember the TV series by the same name. I was reading it to the class when another of my tutors walked in. Keeping my American accent in check, I saved it from dramatic emphasis at crucial points in the story. In fact, I thought I'd done just swell and dandy with my reading, but my tutor had other thoughts. This time, my choice of accents wasn't the problem, however. What I was doing was far worse. Knowing that certain words and conventions used by 19th century Midwest pioneers might be a bit confusing, I kept stopping to explain and clarify what was going on. There's no need for that, my tutor told me. Just let the story flow. Tell it as it is, and let them figure it out. She was right. Breaking the flow of the story was a much greater crime. After that, I always waited until I'd closed up the book to check how much had actually gone in. It always amazes me to see how smart kids really are. Not much ever gets past them. I've often thought about the headmaster at Brompton by Sorden, the master storyteller. I can still remember his class walks around the village, listening along as he told the children tales of moorhens and coots that swam in the river, and the story of a great inventor called George Cayley. Long since dead, he'd once lived just around the corner at Brompton Hall. He was a very clever chap, a polymath, some say a latter-day Leonardo da Vinci, who built a flying machine almost a hundred years before the Wright brothers ever took to the skies. As I sat with the class one sunny afternoon on a grassy hill overlooking the village, I tried to imagine that flimsy machine of wood and canvas gliding up over the fields and hedgerows. I'm sure if George had been with us, he would have had such a story to tell. 
I can just imagine him proudly checking his contraption as a little band of local farmhands and milkmaids look on, wondering what in heaven's name he's doing. Picture their wide eyes and gaping expressions as the machine hesitantly takes to the air like a fledgling, a small boy holding on tight to the seat of his pants and hardly daring to look down. A few months after my time at Brompton, I had another teaching practice. This time, I was sent to a class in Whitby. The teacher was Robin Wells. What I didn't realise until I got there was that Robin was a woman. She was a well-seasoned teacher who reminded me of a favourite Cub Scout leader I once had. The other thing about Robin Wells was that her grandfather was none other than H.G. Wells, the writer of some of my favourite books. Books like The Time Machine, The Invisible Man and The War of the Worlds. Herbert George Wells was born in Kent. He had two sons, one called Frank, who was Robin's dad. She had what I would call a London accent. Her manner was assertive and unambiguous, but she certainly had a sense of humour and didn't take herself too seriously. The book I chose to read to the class was called Brother in the Land by Robert Swindles. It was a very modern children's story, a sort of up-to-day war of the worlds set in a time of nuclear weapons rather than tanks and field artillery. After a couple of readings, Robin took me to one side. What's that book you're reading them, she asked. I showed her. Some of the parents are a bit concerned, she said. It's worrying the children. I soon learnt that there was a very good reason for it. What I hadn't taken into account was that some of the parents worked at a missile early warning station called Filingdales, just ten minutes down the road. This was back in the days of the Cold War, and a strike from the East was a hot topic. Robin admitted that the author was a good one, and his book was a fine piece of writing. But perhaps now wasn't quite the right time, and with a US base virtually on the school's doorstep, this wasn't perhaps quite the right place. I think it's best you pick something else, she said. Save that one for another day. Perhaps she was remembering the Führer almost fifty years earlier surrounding her grandfather's story. It was Halloween 1938. A budding young actor called Orson Welles, who was incidentally no relation to HG, took part in a radio broadcast that included a series of news flashes. Wells reported alarming explosions on Mars, strange objects falling from the skies, and an invasion of Martians with deadly heat rays and poison gas. The media went wild. Many listeners tuning in believed the reports were real and ran for the hills, fearing the world was actually being invaded. Imagine that. Perhaps Robin was right to be cautious. Just think what my college tutors would have said if it got back to them that my class had run off, waving their arms and screaming hysterically. In my second week at Westcliff School, I had the children write and tell stories of their own. One boy couldn't be bothered. He dashed off something stupid, just to say he'd done it. My first reaction was to pull the page from his book and to make him start again. But Robin Wells had a much better idea. Work with him, she said. Find one good thing about his story and tell him what you like about it. I have to say it was a struggle, but somehow I managed to pick out a kernel of an idea from all the nonsense he'd written. If you cut him down, he'll give you nothing next time, Robin told me. Once again she was right. Some 
are born storytellers. I rank the headmaster at Brompton as one of them. So was H.G. Wells, and so is Robert Swindles, who incidentally won a prestigious book award for Brother in the Land. Others believe they have nothing worth saying. Of course they do. We all do. Even the boy I taught briefly all those years ago. Who knows, he may well have gone on to become a writer, a journalist, a poet, or perhaps someone who just enjoys telling a good tale. I'd like to think so. Once again, we've come to the end. Thanks for joining me. A list of all the books mentioned in this podcast can be found on my Green Ginger website at munzer.co.uk. Click the subscribe button on the homepage and I'll let you know all about future episodes and monthly book giveaways. Until next time, grab a book and let me know what treasures you discover. <laughs>